Well, especially in Cincinnati, there's nothing like singing about a blue sky, because especially the weird weather we've had. But in our new series, Prism, we're talking about what we think about when we think about God. And for some of us, when we think about God, he's the Mr. Blue Sky up in the air. He probably made me. He's probably my creator. He at least wound the universe up. I'm not exactly sure how he gets involved in my life. And yet you hear a song like that, <clears throat> or you see the different colors on the screen, and you say, I want my life to be filled with technicolor. I want the yellows and the bold colors. I want to have that feeling in my life. And what we're discovering is that where many of us see God as a white light, God used the Bible as a prism. And that prism illuminated different colors, different names of him, so that we would get to know him better and understand the kind of color he wanted to put in our life. We learned last week about the name El, God the Creator. We learned about Ab, God the Father. But dun, 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 dun. Today we're going to learn about Adonai, which is God the Boss. Oh, I like Dad. I like Creator. I'm not sure I like the Boss. And just like last week, we had to wrestle with how God was not the reflection of our earthly dads, but the perfection of our earthly fathers. Sometimes the idea of God being a boss brings up a lot of bad images, like this scene from The Office. Let's watch. Oh, you can just feel the pain of watching that scene. What a horrible boss. What a terrible boss. What a terrible thing to do to somebody. And so when we are introduced to a new color of God's name, which is Adonai today, which literally means boss or ruler or master, immediately every bad image of bad boss that we've had or we've seen comes to mind because there's something about the word boss that brings up something in us, deep, deep within us. It started back, if you're like me, it started all the way back to kindergarten in the sandbox where you didn't have to teach your kids, you didn't have to teach yourself this, it just came out of you. You're not my boss. You can't tell me what to do, you said to your brother. Or you said to your friend, then you left college, you went off on your own because you wanted to be your own boss and not have your parents have those rules being under their roof. For some of us, we worked for a company for a while and then we went off on our own to be our own boss. And we enjoyed that because we didn't want other people bossing us around. Or if we're honest, we liked bossing other people around. So we did our own thing. And many of us who've done that successfully, we've even said to ourselves, I can't imagine working for anyone else now. Because now we don't have the control. We like the flexibility. We don't have to put up with certain processes, certain systems, certain bureaucracy. Or we were so bored in that environment, we didn't feel like the best of us was coming out. And we didn't have the challenge that we have in our new entrepreneurial uh, adventure. And we say, you know what? If we're really honest, we wouldn't say this out loud, but here's what we really believe. Here's what I really believe. In the deep part of my heart, I'm the best boss I'll ever have. Don't we really believe that? I'm the best boss I'll ever have. I can run things better. I can handle things better. My instincts are better. And the core issue in the human heart, spiritually, relationally, sociologically, is that we think we're the best boss we're ever going to have. And yet when we begin to weigh out how we run life, there can be some pros and cons. Sometimes the freedom we found in being our own boss 
is the freedom freedom we drowned in because now the buck stops here with everything. The independence that we have of not having to go through bureaucracy and systems and other people's checks and balances in our decision making can also be a lack of other voices. And all of a sudden our weaknesses, we don't have somebody else to speak into our weaknesses to check us and our strengths become double weaknesses because we don't have someone else speaking into the process. The freedom of being your own boss can be the lack of security. And that phrase, I can't imagine working for somebody else, may speak to bad bosses like we saw in that last clip. But I've found in my life that that phrase, I can't imagine working for somebody else, sometimes speaks to my own flaws. My own inflexibility, my own stubbornness, my own self-centeredness. It may not be just that there were bad bosses out there. It might be that there's something in me that just doesn't want to get on board or team up with other people. Or maybe I just haven't found the right boss. Because sometimes if you go from having a bad boss to a different type of cultural environment, a different type of person who brings the best out of you, you say, well, I didn't know it could be like this. I didn't know I could have somebody who built into me, who brought the best out of me, who challenged me, who, 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 who set a vision for me to create everything I thought I was capable and more. In fact, several of us left corporate environment to start our own thing because we wanted to be the boss we never had. We wanted to be a boss who was respectful, who cared for people, who set a certain climate, a certain culture, a certain vision. And and we thought, I couldn't find a place that brought the best out of me, so I'm going to create a place that will bring the best out of me and others. We made the transition. And we hope now, as the boss, that we're creating that kind of culture that brings the best out of other people. So it's not really that we're against bosses. It's just we wonder if there's a boss worthy of our affection. We wonder if there's a, a, an environment that can really bring the best out of us. And if not, we'll create it on our own. But ultimately, we want the kind of place that creates a vision for our life, a, a culture we can work in, a boss worthy of our affection. And I want to propose to you that we can make a transition in our hearts this morning from I'm my own boss to finding someone who brings the best out of us. And we say... I can never imagine working for somebody else now that I've seen this kind of boss, this kind of environment. And God wants us to make that transition from in our heart saying, I'm my own boss. Like, I'm not going to submit to you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to listen to you. To getting to know him. It's not a caricature, but as a real person, God says, when you get to know me, when you get to see what I have for you, when we begin to work together, you're going to say, I could never work for anyone else. The God I thought would limit my freedom has given me more freedom. The, the God who I thought would, would, would take away my, my, my best has brought out my best. So I'm going to give you three reasons why the Bible says here in this passage with Abraham and Adonai why God is the best boss that can bring out your very best. The first reason is this. God is a boss, a worthy boss that you've been seeking. For many of us, we went from job to job to job, culture to culture to culture. We're seeking a great boss, a great environment. God says, I am the worthy boss you've been looking for. The model to be a a, a boss yourself, the one who can bring out your very best. I am the worthy boss you've been seeking. He comes to Abraham. Very interesting what he says to Abraham. He says, after these things, we'll talk about what those are in just a moment. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That's quite a pitch. 
I'm going to be your reward, your exceedingly great reward. That's the kind of boss I'm going to be. And Abraham says, Lord God, which means Adonai, boss. What will you give me? Seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar Damascus. A little background here. God had made Abraham a promise years earlier and said, I'm going to make you a great man. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you lots and lots of children. Currently, you and your wife are struggling with barrenness, but you're going to have an incredibly large family. Trust me. And he's been trusting. For not weeks, not months, but decades. No child. And God shows up into that and says, hey, just want to check in with you, Abram. I am your shield. I am your great reward, your exceedingly great reward. To which Abram says, show me the money. If I get all this great reward, why don't I have a child? My wife and I have wrestled. You have promised. We wrestled. We promised. I still have no heir. And God, I've been a great employee. I, Abram, have been a great employee. You know what I've done? I left Ur. I left all my family members. Everybody in Ur, you told me to leave this place and go to this place I'd never heard of before. And I did that. You told me to leave my family. I left my family. I gave it all up. I gave up all the gods of my nations. And I said, I'm going to trust this one true God to be my Adonai. And what do I have to show for it? No heir. No promise. I'm doing my part. You're not doing yours. The word Adonai is used in the Bible 400 times. Apparently God wants us to wrestle with. That's what Abram's doing. Wrestling with. Is this a boss I can serve? Is this a boss I can trust? Is this a worthy boss I've been seeking? Because I'm looking at the last few months and decades of my life. And it does not look like he's a shield. It does not look like he's an exceedingly great reward. Show me the air, Adonai. So Abram thinks he's the best boss he'd ever have, and he thinks he's a great employee. But let me back up a little bit and tell you what we know about Abram. Because this little sales pitch about how great he is maybe isn't quite so accurate. God comes to Abram way back living in Ur and says, Abram, I want you to leave Ur, and I want you to trust me, and I want you, as you leave Ur, to not take your family with you. I want you to trust me, go out on your own. I mean, take your wife, but you know, don't take your extended family. They're not trusting me, they're not following me. So trust me, we're going to follow through Egypt, and I'm going to take you to a place for a land and a family and a nation. The first thing we learn about Abram, first thing, is that he disobeys. He's not a great employee. In fact, the first thing he does is, all right, God, I'm going to trust you, but I am going to bring Lot along with me. And he and Lot cause all kinds of problems because he disobeys God. On their way to the promised land, they come through Egypt. He's married to Sarai. And he's scared that the Pharaoh is going to want to marry his wife because she's pretty good looking and he's a schlub. So he turns to his wife and says, hey, let's lie and say that you're my sister, not my wife. He doesn't do that just once, he does it twice. So we learned he's a liar. We, we learned he uh, disobeys. Then we learned he lies. The Pharaoh finds out, apparently they're getting involved somehow, and it comes out, oh, you're really married to this guy. Pharaoh, who's got all kinds of Egyptian gods, is like, whoa. Why did you, Abram, lie to me about your wife being your sister? Now your God might be mad at me. I respect your God. I want to obey your God. Take everything you've touched and get out of here. 
Every piece of furniture you've touched, every piece of gold you've touched, every servant you've interacted with, I don't want any of it. Well, of the group of stuff that goes with him, one is a servant girl named Hagar. As they're waiting for God's promise, wondering if they can trust him as boss, Sarai says, listen, it's clear the boss isn't going to come through here. I'm not going to have a child. I'm in my 90s now, for crying out loud. How about we do a practice in our culture, which is that this servant given to us by Pharaoh, because of your two lies, how about I will let you sleep with her? Treating this woman like property. He does. So now he's an adulterer. They have a child, and while she's pregnant, Hagar's pregnant, Sarah is now incredibly jealous because she couldn't have a child. Now the family dysfunction is getting worse and worse. To which Sarah comes to Abram and says, What should I do with this, this, this woman of yours? My, that was your idea. He says, Hey, she's your servant. Treat her how you want. And he watches Sarah brutally beat, harshly treat, same word used of the Egyptians and the Israelites, this pregnant woman. Sends her off into the desert to die, where she meets with God, and God reveals himself to Hagar as Bir Hiloroi, the God who sees. He says, I see you and I see what was done to you. And God brings Hagar back and confronts Abraham on his abuse, confronts Abraham on his treatment. He sets boundaries. He works in the dysfunction. This is not a great employee. And God steps into the situation and confronts and cares and has compassion and works in the midst of all this junk. And Abraham, who is saying, God, I'm such a great employee, (laughs) his story doesn't necessarily tell that to be true. Yet we discover a God who doesn't just throw people away who are really screwed up, who works with us. Sets boundaries for us, sets values for us, sets culture for us, tells us what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And yet in the midst of it all, works with us in our dysfunction. God moves an awful lot of dirt in Abraham's life to begin to refine him into gold, to be the father of three nations. Andrew Carnegie was asked by a news reporter one time, how in the world did you get 43 millionaires working for you? There's hardly that many in the world today. You have 43 millionaires working for you today. What's the secret? Andrew Carnegie says, well, they weren't millionaires until they started working for me. He said, the secret of leadership is like digging for gold. When I met each one of these men and women, I went digging for gold. For each one of them, I had to move a lot of dirt, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of misunderstanding, A lot of bad ideas, and I had to dig, dig, dig into the mine of who they were. And I dug deeper and deeper until I found a little gold. And that's how you develop people. You don't go looking for dirt, but you've got to move a lot of dirt in order to find a little gold. And Andrew Carnegie, by moving all this dirt and being willing to work in the dysfunction of these people's lives, brought the very best out of them. And that's the kind of boss God was, and God is. You don't have to come to him and say, hey, look at the shiny pieces of my life. You come to him as you are, and God is the worthy boss who sets boundaries for you, tells you what's right, tells you what's wrong, works with you, doesn't give up on you when you make horrible mistakes and terrible things, tells you, tells you what's been inappropriate, how to reconcile with relationships. God's willing to move a lot of dirt to find a little gold. He's that kind of boss. But more than that, he's not just a God who's the worthy boss you've been looking for. He's also the God who has a bigger vision. 
Some of us, the thing about our jobs is we're just bored. It's gotten too easy. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't bring out our best. We're good at what we do, but we wonder, can I move from, from success to significance? We need a grander vision for our life. That's exactly what happens with God and Abram. After these things, all that dysfunction, all that abuse, God turns to him. And Abram replies, look, you've given me no offspring. I can't trust you as my boss. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. I've got this other child, Ishmael. And behold, the word of the Lord says, and again, here's his two words. So God shows up and says, the Lord Yahweh, which means the self-existent one. We'll talk about that more next week. The one that has all access to everything you'd ever need. The uncaused cause. Yahweh turns to him and says, this one. Ishmael through Hagar is not going to be your heir. I'm going to bring you a grander vision. I'm going to call you to something that seems impossible. There's going to be a child born out of your body that will be your heir. To which you say, oh, that's interesting. He's about 100 years old. His wife's in her late 90s. This is a grander vision. (laughs) What are you talking about? Let's go with Ishmael. I'm going to be the only guy going through the straw market buying diapers and depends at the same time. (laughs) At a time he's ready to retire, God is saying, no, I'm just about to start the grander vision I have for your life at 100. It's a grander vision. You tried to do it your own way. How'd that work out for you? How's that relationship going between your two wives? How's your relationship going between you and Sarah? I said, one man, one woman. You went outside of that. It's dysfunction. Now, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to work in the midst of it. But wow, my way may take longer, but it works better. Trust my timing as your boss. Trust my way. And trust that I'm going to do something far greater than what you could produce in your own efforts, which hasn't really worked out real well. It's brought a lot of pain. And here's what's interesting about Adonai and Yahweh. Yahweh is God providing for you. More of who he is, more of what he's doing, more of what his plan is, more and more responsibility, a sense of who God is and his purpose for your life. And a lot of us want that. We want the colors of all those things in our life. But God says the way you get access to more of the Yahweh is to submit more to the Adonai. The more you entrust me as your Adonai, your boss, the more I reveal and give you access to more responsibility. This is true in any business, isn't it? Somebody comes in, you first hire them, and you don't give them a lot of responsibility because you don't want to screw too much stuff up. People come in very me-focused. And on the me-focus aspect, think of it like a timeline or think of it like an up-down. Next slide. Me-focus on the bottom. Somebody comes in. And what you want to do is you're going to test them over time. You've put policies in place. You've put systems in place to see if over time they can be me-focused or can they be more corporate-focused, more mission-focused? Can they begin to embody the values of the company? Are they doing the things the way you would do them, the way your company would do them, the values... And the more you see someone submit to your mission, submit to your vision, begin to act out and do and even obey the values of the company, the more what do you do? You give them increased responsibility and increased access. You don't give more access and responsibility to somebody who's me-focused, who takes all the credit and passes off all the blame. 
But somebody who's team-driven, somebody who's on board with the vision of the, the whole organization, you increasingly give them access to responsibility and more benefit. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. As long as we're at a place where we say, I'm my own boss, and God, I'm not going to do whatever you want, but I still want access and I still want benefits. God says, let's wrestle with that. Are you willing to put in place my values? Self-centeredness or other-centeredness? You do always need to be right. Are you okay with taking the blame? And the more you're able to move from, I'm the own boss, to God, I'm going to let you be boss, and I'm going to trust that your values really matter and really are better than mine, the more you do that, the more God gives you access to more benefit and more responsibility. Jesus tells a story like this of a boss and some, uh, some employees. He says it this way. At the end of the time, the boss, Curios, the Lord, the boss, turns to him and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. The few things I entrusted you with, you put my kingdom, my values, my mission in place on. And since you were faithful in a few things, I will make you ruler or boss over greater things. That's just how life works, isn't it? When you see, when you can trust somebody with a little piece, you trust them with a bigger piece. God's the same way. If I can trust you with a little piece, I'll trust you with a bigger piece. But look how it ends. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Not enter into the submission of the Lord, the bondage of the Lord, enter into the now you're doing what the boss says kind of thing. Joy. There is so much joy in saying, well, I love the work we're doing. I love how we're changing the world. I love I got to be a part of it. Now I get to be part of a bigger piece. It's a grander vision for your life. God says, when, when you find this kind of boss, he's not the kind of boss that subjugates you or, or just or pushes you down. He brings out your very best. He sets a vision for your life and a challenge for you. And, and as you submit more and more to him as Adonai, he gives you more and more access to the great things he's doing in the world, purpose for your life, peace, understanding, gentleness, self-control, a kind of love you've never seen before. Enter into the joy of the Lord. 2006, Reese Witherspoons won uh, the Oscar for her work in Walk the Line. And as she got to give her speech that went viral, it was so powerful because she thanked almost every authority and boss that led her to this moment. She stood up and said, I want to thank the producers and the directors and the writer for writing this woman, June Carter, who's a Christian, if you don't know, in the music industry. She said, you know... I had to submit myself and put myself under creating and becoming this character. And I love becoming this person. I love that these writers had written a noble and good woman to play. She thanked her grandmother. She said, you know, my grandmother had a huge influence in me as an authority in my life. And she taught me to be a good woman of self-control and dignity. As I went into Hollywood, it was hard to find roles where I could play a woman of self-control and dignity. But I want to thank my bosses for creating it. I want to thank the producers. I want to thank the writers that I got to become this character. She said, I want to thank my parents. Because you always encouraged me. Whether I was making my bed or making a movie, you encouraged me the same. You built something into me. She said, June Carter changed me by becoming her. People would come up to June Carter and say to her, How are you doing, June? She would say, I'm just trying to make a difference. And he said, I realize that's what I want to do. I want to have that attitude every day. I just want to make a difference. 
And she thanked the people who were in authority over her, from her mother to her grandmother to her dad to her producers, because by crafting a character that she put herself under and created, it brought the best out of her. She even joked that one of her lifelong missions was to become a country music star, which she got to do by playing this role in the movie. Her boss helped her dreams come true, didn't stomp on them. That's what this vision does. When God comes into your life, this vision for your life, it, it, it eats up. It's bigger than your doubts. It's bigger than your insecurities. And it's bigger than the boredom of just going through the motions of life. God shows up to a guy named Gideon and does the same thing. He says, I'm your Adonai. The angel of the Lord, Yahweh, came and sat under a terebinth tree. Wow, God comes near. And Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, you never thresh wheat in a wine press. You would go up top so it would all blow away. When you're in a wine press, it would be like sanding drywall in a closet. Just there's fumes everywhere. So here he is, knocking off the wheat, knocking off the wheat. <coughs> but he's scared to death that Midianites are going to take over. But he's going through the motions. He's got a job. He's surviving. He's getting through everything. God says, i got something far more for you in your life than just threshing wheat, hiding out from the Midianites in fear. And the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, says to him, appeared to him, said, The Lord, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. Who, me? Mighty man of valor hiding out in the closet from the Midianites? Who, me? You can't be talking to me. This grander vision is, there is so much more I have for you than threshing around in a closet. There's so much more to you than your insecurities. There's so much more to you than your fears. I see in you something I'm going to develop in you as your boss. I want to make you into a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Oh, boss, oh, Adonai, I got some questions. If the Lord, Yahweh, is really with us, if the all-powerful one is really with us, I got some questions for you. Why has all this happened to us? Why are all these bad things occurring to us and the Midianites suppressing us if you're really God? And by the way, where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about? Saying, oh yeah, did not God bring us out of Egypt? I remember stories of the Bible when you used to do miracles and do amazing things. If you're really Yahweh, and you want me to submit to you as boss, show me your resume, because I haven't seen you do anything in a long time. I see a big problem in the world, and I see you doing nothing about it. Now, that's bold. That's a bold, honest conversation. And God continues, he answers him. But now the Lord... You, Yahweh, you've forsaken us. You've delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. What do you have to say for yourself? And then the Lord Yahweh turns to him after just accused his boss of all these things. How's the boss going to react? He ignores all the doubts and says, I don't know about all that, but go in this might of yours. You are going to be part of the solution. You're going to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? You see a problem out there? Yeah. You want God to do something about it? Yeah. You're it. I'm coming to you right now to make you into the kind of leader that doesn't thresh wheat in a closet, but leads people against this terrorist Midianite nation. I'm using you to be part of the problem, to solve it, if you'll trust me as your boss and your Yahweh. To which he replies, oh, Yahweh. Now, see, he made the switch. He switched from Adonai, boss, to maybe he is the self-existent one. Oh, Yahweh, you got the wrong guy. How could I save Israel? 
Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You pick the last worst guy for your job. And God says, aren't you tired of just sitting, thriving, surviving in a closet? Aren't you made for more than just going through the motions, Gideon? It's time to decide. Do you want your vision, which is a small vision for your life, or do you want a grander vision for what I might do? And Gideon will decide in a series of decisions to start submitting to God as boss, and God will develop him into a mighty man of valor who overcomes his doubts and overcomes his fears. And will do amazing things. Instead of just threshing wheat, he saves Israel from the Midianites. It's recorded in the Bible, in the book of Judges in history. About a year and a half ago, I saw a video of a guy who uh, went to a conference that I was at. And he works for Walgreens. And he felt like God was doing unto him what God just did unto Gideon. He felt like God was tapping him on the shoulder and encouraging him to see a larger vision for his life. What would it look like if God tapped your shoulder and asked you to do something grand in the midst of your company? Let's watch. Nine million people, because of one tap on the shoulder and one guy who persevered to say, God, you might want me to work within my current company to just set an idea or a vision for how we could do good business and good benefit to others. Imagine if you took your current skills, current environment, and did the same thing. God, instead of just going through the motions of what I'm doing, if you were my boss, what might you encourage me to do with my current sphere of influence to impact a grander vision? All around Horizon, you're going to find folks who go on mission trips. They come back and they say, oh my goodness, they need medical supplies over there. Oh my goodness, I could use these connections here to change the world. God begins to call all of us to a grander vision. And often there's stumbling blocks. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to work. But as we persevere, we find a grander vision. God challenges us to something greater than ourselves, greater than comfort and convenience, is changing the world for his purposes. The third and final reason that he's a great boss our boss worthy of your affection is that God's benefit package is superior. As a boss, his benefit package is superior. He turns to Abraham, he brought, brings him outside, and says, Look now toward heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. I don't even have one, God. I don't need stars. I just need one. I want you to trust me as your boss, as your self, the self-existent one. That if you will trust me, I will bring about my promises in my time. Well, there's a crisis of faith. And every time you're challenged to move closer to God, there's going to be a, a crisis of faith. Will I trust that he's a better boss than I am of my own life? King Louis was wrestling with the existence of God one time. He turned to Blaise Pascal, one of the most you know, brilliant philosophers and mathematicians of, of human history. He said, what argument do you have for the existence of God? Blaise Pascal gave him one word response. The greatest argument for the existence of God, he says, the Jews. The Jewish people. Because this promise made to Abraham way, way back in history, there's no way the Jewish people as a nation should exist based on what's happened in history, but that there's something else going on. Mark Twain, a skeptic, not a believer in the Bible, acknowledged this as well. Look what Mark Twain said, writing in Harper's Magazine, I think it's in 1890. The Egyptian, 
the Babylonian and the Persian rose. They filled the planet with sound and splendor and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed. They made a vast noise and they were gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time and it burned out. And the Jews saw them all and beat them all and it burned out. And now what he already was exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts. All things are mortal except the Jewish people. All other forces seem to pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? He said, there's something going on with this people that God made a promise with that keeps overcoming the worst of the worst of the worst of circumstances in history that other nations couldn't overcome. There's something about God as your boss, as your sustainer, even in the worst of times that transcends even history. The last aspect of his benefit package, though, he goes on, he says, so Abraham believed, didn't work, he believed in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is the main message of the Bible. Your righteousness is where you find your identity. Your righteousness is where you find your worth. Your righteousness is where you find your connection. Where do you go for comfort? Where do you go for your source of identity? That's your righteousness, is how the Bible describes it. And the Bible doesn't say you are righteous and then God accepts you. It's not your righteousness you give to God and he says, well, welcome to heaven. Now, look, it says God accounted. He's an accounting term, a business term. God looks at your financial ledger. Every time you do something wrong, it's a negative. Every time you do something, something right, it's a positive. And your negatives far outweigh your positives. God says, I'm going to forgive all your negatives on the ledger. But I'm going to do far better than that. Your positives aren't good. I'm going to accredit, account to your account. I'm going to deposit into your account spiritually my righteousness. Now think about that. Not your righteousness. God's going to say, you know how righteous, how pure, how faithful I am? I'm going to accredit, deposit that into your spiritual bank account. And I'm now going to receive you based on what I am and what I did for you. And all you have to do is believe it. If you believe that I will give you my righteousness, that's why my benefit package is superior. No other religion, no other philosophy would dare to say that God makes you as righteous as he is as a gift of salvation. But that's the message of the Bible. It's not you trying harder, spinning harder. It's God giving you his righteousness. And that's why he's a boss worthy of our affection. And when you get this gift, when you understand this message, you start saying, I'm ready to make the change. I want to be in good hands. I want to be in the hands of a boss I can trust. It's worthy of my affection. I don't always understand why I'm going to wrestle with doubts. I'm going to have questions. But in the midst of it, I'm going to trust that he knows better than I. As I get to know his heart and his righteousness and his plan and his benefits for me, I'm going to trust that I can make the transition from I'm my own boss. and Oh, that feels so much better. To I could never work for anyone else. This next song is called In Your Hands. It describes the emotional journey of moving from I'm my own boss to putting yourself and your life into the hands of God. Let's listen together. There's something pretty powerful that happens, even if you're not sure if you believe it yet or ready for it, when you know that your life, your family, everything that's dear to you is held in the hands of someone you can trust. I mean, imagine you and I are the prism. Imagine we began to just let a little bit of the light of God as master, ruler, boss of our life begin to flow in. See, your life will begin to be filled with some colors. 
One of the colors is I stop acting like an owner and I start acting like an employee. And there's a lot of benefits to being an employee rather than an owner of everything. You don't have to own judging people all the time. You don't have to own bitterness and keeping track of everybody who's done what. There's freedom in putting that stuff into the hands of someone. And your life gets filled with the color of green, the color of gratitude. You're grateful for what your boss has entrusted you, your talents, your opportunities, the freedom. Do you remember your first boss? You remember getting your first job and you, you came home and you called your parents, you called your fiance, you called your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you're like, oh, it's my first big break. You were filled with gratitude that a boss had given you your first opportunity to start your real job. And the color of that gratitude, that green light, has not only flowed through that, but that sets you up in a lot of ways. You learned a lot in that first job about how to work. You learned about what you liked about certain cultural environments. You learned what you didn't. But the color of that first boss flowed through your life. And you learned that there's some benefits of being under the authority of somebody who's got more wisdom than you, that's got more experience than you. The second thing that happens when you put your life in God's hand is you act like an employee and your life gets filled with a sense of responsibility. But it's not the kind of responsibility of having a boss that's always looking over your shoulder and you're like, why don't we get caught? It's not even the kind of responsibility that says, I want to be an honorable person. That's all good. This new color of God being your boss is, if he made me pleasing to him, I really want to please my boss. It's like every time you watch an episode of Undercover Boss. The CEO comes and he sits down with an employee and they all get so tearful and so emotional because someone in authority over them encourages them, sees their work, speaks value into them. That's what God wants to do to us. And the final color is the color orange. It's the color of being worry-free. So what's amazing is that when God is the owner and not you of all your stuff, all your problems, all your life, you can be worry-free because you can cast the anxiety and the responsibility on him. It's like I moved from Georgia 13 years ago, but I still have a house that I own down there, so I'm a landlord. And about once every three months, I get a call from the property manager who got a call from the tenant who says, oh, we got a problem. Dishwasher's broke. Oh, the roof needs fixed. And you know what? My property manager is never worried. He just calls up and says, what do you want to do about it to me? How do you want me to put your values, your finances, your decisions into this situation? That's what happens in life when God becomes the owner and you become the employee. You got a problem? You call God up. Hey, God, I got a problem with your stuff you've asked me to manage. I want to let you hold the worry. You hold the anxiety. I just want you to know, what would you like me to do here? How can I put your values, how can I put your mission in place in this situation? Worry-free, responsible, and a great sense of gratitude. Who doesn't want those colors in their life? It happens when we begin to see God as our Adonai, and then he provides more of his Yahweh. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for our journey into these uh, colors of who you are and what you do in our life. We just ask that you will call us to discover who you are and not resist the idea of you being the boss just because we've had so many bad bosses, but instead to see you as the boss we've always longed for. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came uh, prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say hey. Third door on your left is the hearth room. There'll be there, people there to greet you. Thanks again.